Maybe big data has gotten too big. Whether you're a B2B marketer or a consumer brand, your data needs to be viable, relevant, and accessible so that Starista can help you retain customers, acquire customers, and make it personal. Welcome to the Marketing Stir Podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ear. I'm Vin, the producer here at Starista. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders and get their take on the current challenges of the market. And we'll have a little fun along the way. In today's episode, Joe Frick, Head of Partnership Development at Oracle, joins Vincent to talk about how remaining curious creates a drive to work toward telling a story with data and marketing. Give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Starista's The Marketing Stir. I, of course, am your happy host, Vincent Petrofessa. It is so good to be talking to you. I have missed you. What do you mean by that? I'm, I come to you every week, I know, but I still miss you. I like talking to you, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you so much for all the love you have been showing the marketing stir. Boy, do you use that email. We appreciate it. And thank you for coming up to me at trade shows. Trade shows are back. It's 2023. Get out there and have some fun. Meet some people. Networking. I just met a new client last night that we've been working with. It was fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're not familiar with the podcast, we are Starista's The Marketing Stir. Let's talk about Starista just for like three seconds. That's all. We don't take advertising on this show and people want to advertise. Thank you, but we don't. We just talk about Starista for a few seconds. We are a marketing technology company. We own our own business-to-business data, our own business-to-consumer data. We help clients access that data through certain technologies that we have, our own ESP, our own DSP. That's a lot of acronyms, but we're in an industry of acronyms. We know that. We help companies get new customers. Who doesn't want that? Email me at vincent at starista.com. That is how confident I am in our services. And like I said, boy, are you using those emails. Nine times out of 10, it's for a different reason. And you just want to tell us how good we're doing, or you have some ideas about guests, or you want to sell me something. That's not necessarily use it for that. But anyway, I appreciate you listening. And today I'm riding solo without my commander in chief, Mr. AJ Gupta. He is at a conference. And he, yeah, he's been a lot of conferences lately. He's a little jet setter. Our, uh, our, our amazing CEO is just out and about. But the good news is it's here. He's here in New York, New York City. You know how much I love when he comes in, our CFO is here. It's always great, always great to, to get together with good people. Speaking of good people, let me tell you something, Marketing Stair audience, this next guest, one of my longest tenured friends in my community here. You know, this gentleman is a personal friend. He is a business friend, a confidant. I learned so much from him. He and I have served on the DMCNY board, now the Marketing Club of New York, many events. It's like if we went to high school together the same year, and I won't say who's older or younger, but we would have hung out. This would have been my guy. This would have been my friend. We would, you know, we talk music, we talk life, we talk business, we talk comedy, we talk so many things. And I can't wait to share him with you, ladies and gentlemen. 
He is the head of partnership development at Oracle Advertising. Oracle, you know Oracle, Oracle Advertising, ladies and gentlemen. My good friend, Mr. Joe Frick. What's going on, Joe? How you doing, Vincent? Great to be with you today. It's always great to be with you, Joe. I, I you know I, I saw you in person recently. A couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago. And, you know, I we started chatting. I'm like, Joe, let's come on. Let's all this chatting. This is a podcast episode, my friend. <laughs> let's get you on this podcast. You know, we want to talk to you about a variety of different things. But how long has it been? What? Probably 10 years that we've known each other? At least, possibly longer, Has possibly longer. I'm thinking maybe early 2000s. So it's approaching 20 years. It has to be. Yeah, I've been in this industry. I graduated college in 2000. So I have been in this industry for 23 years now, 22. So I started my career in this industry in 2001. I, I joked recently when I was hosting the Silver Apple Awards for the Marketing Club of New York, I said I was the oldest rising star for Marketing Edge. Maybe I'll be the youngest Silver Apple Award winner. So, you know, maybe that nice, because I, I thought I've risen years ago, but people are like, no, it's now. This is when you've risen, the oldest uh, rising star. But yeah, it's, it's been like, wow, 20 years. That's good. You know, that, that, that's, that's, that's a long time. It is. You know, but Joe, let's get right into it. Talk to us about, people know Oracle, the company, right? It's everywhere. It's one of the biggest companies. People know it. I think there's arenas, you know, that they sponsor. But Oracle Advertising, talk to us about your particular unit there, uh, what, what they do, and some of your day-to-day -day personally. Sure, sure thing. Well, again, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, I've been with Oracle, um, by the time this airs, it will probably just be eight years. I started April 1st, 2015. And Oracle built the advertising business unit uh, synthetically through a number of acquisitions, starting with Blue Kai in 2014, and Data Logics in 2015, which is really how I found my entry into Oracle, and then a, a number of subsequent acquisitions after that. So the advertising business unit is purpose-built to offer data solutions. And my role within um, the advertising business unit is on a subdivision called Data First, or D1. And as the head of partnership development for D1, my role is to partner principally with what we call specialty retailers. These are your traditional catalog marketers, your non-traditional digitally native direct-to-consumer marketers um, in data partnership that serves the purpose of helping them acquire new customers. And in exchange, um, we leverage some of that data um, in our identity matrix and across our solutions um, to build out better data solutions and then to connect um, advertisers with buyers to protect that investment with brand safe activation, and then to measure the efficiency and efficacy of impact of those advertising decisions. That's really the business unit at large and these data partnerships fuel the data solutions. Very nice. And we always ask this question for all of our guests because it's usually not a direct path, but how did you get involved in marketing? What was your, you know, did you study marketing in school or was it a different path and you stumbled upon marketing? Like, uh, like most guests that we talked to me personally, it, mar marketing was a minor of mine. So here I am, but tell us about that journey. Sure. It's, it's, it's an interesting journey because it wasn't at all rooted in a business education 
Um, I was a, an economics major in college first and enjoyed studying economics probably more from that sort of the lens of understanding behavior, sort of the application of the social science. But along that journey, um, I took a course in the history of economic thought. And it was a really, it was a game changer for me. It, it lit off, it, it switched on a couple of, of things I wasn't aware of. And that led me down a parallel path to study analytic philosophy. And at my time at Rutgers University, um, the discussions in analytic philosophy focused on cognitive science. Once again, sort of weirdly cycling back to this idea of understanding behavior. And so these two things kind of merged together. And as I ended college, um, one important note here is during college, I actually carried letter mail for the USPS as a part-time job, putting myself through school. So on the heels of college, here I am with this interest in behavior. I was actually thinking about going to grad school at that point, but I, passed, I pushed pause. I wanted to, to earn some money and I got a job um, in the mailroom of a mailing list company called American List Council, now called Adstra. And this is yeah. late 1994. And within months of that appointment, um, I cycled over to a sales desk and learned the art and science of data compilation from scratch. This is sort of kind of free the current methods of doing so. This was directory compilation. There were a few key players in the space. Um, and that was really the, the thing that kicked off the journey. Um, five years later, I moved into a consultancy, a specialty consultancy in New York, Adria Rubin Marketing and Management. Sure. It's been 15 years there, um, working ultimately up to vice president of marketing and social media, running sales teams, being involved um, in, in the business and through partnerships that we had had at Adria's, I connected with folks at Data Logics. And when I reached out to Data Logics about an opportunity, after a number of years of a successful partnership, they were being acquired by Oracle as one of the pillars of the advertising business unit. So that entirely spans nearly 29 years of work experience wow. and sort of almost an accidental journey from its inception. But there's a thread there about this idea of understanding consumer behavior and then coincidentally working as a, as a delivering letter mail, which the, the origin of which and the success yeah. of which largely hinges on placing a bet on predicting that behavior um, when you're sending consumers offers, when you're sending businesses offers. So funny enough, that sort of, presaged my entry into the marketing industry wow. and really the data solutions industry that you know that is that is a unique story it makes so much like the philosophy background it, you know the behavioral that that makes so much sense every time i talk to you i feel like i like you also could have been like a therapist you know i think <laughs> i think you have such a great you know you, you're such a great listener and you, you always offer such you know, great advice, which is why, again, you know, people in this industry love you. And, and I know your customers love you having, you know, been around you and your customers. Um, but how do you think that philosophy background has kind of, you know, helped you in your work today? I think it really, you know, when there's appreciation for behavior generally, but really the curiosity, the philosophy certainly services and, and feeds an appetite of curiosity. And I think I've always enjoyed that personally. Um, but it's really this idea of, of investigating something and deeply, right? To, to kind of try to understand at a, at a pretty granular level some of the finer points of how these things work. And what's interesting now, you know, many, many years hence, um, working in the, in the technology space, the aspect of technology that informs the data solutions, we're now utilizing mechanisms and methods 
um, around machine learning and artificial intelligence that power models that, that work in the predictive analytics sphere. And it's fascinating because herein is, is, is the application of a very sort of a, a deep learning aspect of that investigation and inquiry into understanding what precisely is predictive and understanding and helping brands acquire customers, what's predictive about um, combining data in certain unique ways to determine that. So I think it really cycles back to this idea of being endlessly curious. And I get the privilege of talking to a number of students, young executives. I participate quite actively in things like mentoring programs. Um, and one of the pieces of advice, um, invariably conversations kind of head this way, um, but to, to remain curious and always ask questions. And I do think that the, philo the philosophy background informs that rather well. I also think philosophers are, are eminently really good storytellers. At the end of the day, they're taking complicated concepts and trying to distill them down to something essential, relatable, um, and something about that feels like a, another endless pursuit alongside curiosity is just trying to be kind of eloquent and try to explain things. And, and I feel like telling a story with data and the marketing with the marketing application kind of gets to the root of that. So in, in a way, the, the philosophy background um, kind of helps me do my job, but I think it also speaks to the essence of what's interesting about the job for me. These these two elements of curiosity and storytelling, and and I think they they they're in abundance in in the philosoph the philosophy discipline. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that really gets to it for me. Oh, I like that. That's uh, you know that totally makes sense, and that is great advice for you know a lot of our listeners out there who are just starting their career in, in, in marketing where, you know, just be curious, you know, also be curious, be asked questions, be curious. It's that curiosity. Joe, you have, I've heard you talk about privacy quite a bit. I've heard you on a few different, you know, panels. I, I love your take on it. Talk to us about, you know, there's a few questions I have about privacy and I, and I also want to get to identity because I know it, it, you know, passionate about that and a lot of the work that Oracle's doing, but how are privacy concerns today different from those before, like the explosion of social media and the internet? I'd love to get your take on that. Sure. I mean, I, I think now more than ever, um, you know, technology is sort of meeting the moment, right? Uh, the promise of the delivery of an exceptional customer experience, which is something all brands strive to do, regardless of the venue direct to consumer and direct uh, business to business or business to consumer marketing. And I do think now that kind of a linchpin of that customer experience is this understanding that there is a increasingly complicated relationship between consumers, those are businesses or consumers, the technology we're now using to interact with them and the sort of exchange of information that occurs during that delivery promise and delivery of a customer experience. It's complicated, it's continued to get more complicated. Um, and generationally now you're kind of seeing uh, different types of consumers interacting with technology differently. And I'm not, that's not to say um, that generations are, are exclusive in any one per perception of how technology works. In fact, um, I would say across the board, no matter the generation, there are varying views and, and facilities with utilizing specific technology. But at the root of this is this ongoing changing relationship between consumers, technology, and the data exchange that occurs in commerce. And so I think consumers are much more aware um, of these sort of perils and pitfalls. 
um, that can that can happen when they're sharing data. I also think that um, the media has kind of focused on specific areas whenever there's a significant data breach, this becomes mainstream news. There's a discussion in the air um, as the technology and the intricacies of how technologies technology is interweaving with our lives, sort of the impact of what it means to share publicly versus to retain privacy in, in terms of, of elements of one's identity, right? This is everything from personally identifiable information to rather sensitive financial data. There's a spectrum and, and many, there's a, a taxonomy all on its own to define and describe different types of data in that value exchange. And I think that in the last 20 years, certainly, there's been much, much more of a focus on it. So much so now that there's, you know, the beginnings of, of um, finally the beginnings of codifying something like a national perspective on it, right? This has been occurring at the state level for quite a while, but now there are more movements in Congress to kind of address this conversation, mostly on the heels of what happened in GDPR in Europe a few years ago. So I think that relationship continues to change as technology changes. I mean, the discussion, most recent discussion about TikTok on Capitol Hill and, and what the political implications are for, for, those, for that business and how it interacts with the U.S. population is like one more aspect of a consumer base that is aware that there are major discussions going on in this venue. And I think because of that awareness, consumers are their perspective on, on their interaction with brands and that data exchanges is changing. Um, and that's, that's really at the root of what's changed over the last 20, 25 years, wherein in the direct mail space, when, it, when that was the original sort of measurable targeted media, there was sort of a little bit less of, of scrutiny about it. Of course, marketers were compiling data. They were bringing about data by virtue of subscriptions and other response vehicles. But now it's much more nuanced ecosystem, a much more nuanced conversation with a much more complex ecosystem. And consumers are more savvy and they're, they're becoming much more aware of the implications of those relationships. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think consumers are way more aware of their digital footprint is that your is that your you know thought process as well yeah it, they are and i think they understand that you know there are ongoing interactions about permissions right whenever you're using specific applications you're always prompted about various media and levels of sharing data and what that use case is you know that's becoming sort of common currency in terms of excuse me how consumers are interacting with the technology that ultimately leads to how a brand interacts with that consumer and that data exchange. So the, the awareness is, is, is growing and increasing. There've been some huge movements in the space. Um, players like Apple have made movements in the space. Just as one example, Google has flagged and, and now a couple of times flagged that they, they aim to deprecate the third-party cookie. Um, there's the rise of things like universal identifiers, which are sort of based on hashing technology and, and modes of, of sort of obfuscation to protect consumer privacy. A whole world of, of discussions about data handling that are now more accessible to consumers because the media reports on them. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and I think, you know, just now with websites let's get into cookies because you know websites uh you know asking every website you go to now is asking for you know permission of the cookies but the deprecation of the cookie has been a topic that people have been talking about for a few years yeah so you know why maybe you know why may we be transitioning to a cookieless environment you know i know how strist is preparing for it but how, how are you preparing for that I mean, it's 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 a notable transition because it's it's changing sort of the the, the standard 
media of commerce and digital advertising. And our perspective is one more of a blended approach of sort of known identifiers um, handled in privacy safe ways. Um, we're talking about the marriage of data solutions and technology. And then, of course, the ability to objectively measure the efficiency and efficacy of that advertising effort. So we're talking about an era where um, a, a, a sensible combination of known identifiers like permission-based PII that works in concert with unknown identifiers, I, you know, universal identifiers potentially, but sort of the space of the known and the unknown and in combination with good technology around sort of brand safe technology solutions that can kind of help in, in context to, to promote the better health and, and smarter advertising. I think a blended combination of those solutions is going to kind of be helpful in, in sort of addressing the, the deprecation of the third party cookie. Of course, on the publisher side, you have registration IDs and all of the permission based on that side. So another stream that kind of finds its way in. And back to the partnerships that I manage at Oracle with retailers, we're working with retailers based on a pretty rigorous set of standards. We're, we're working um, in concert with the retailers to make sure that they're providing you know, notice and disclosure, very clear notice and disclosure about that value exchange. We're collecting X data, and within the bounds of personally identifiable marketing data, this is how the brand is disclosing it, uses it to its customers and how it how it partners with entities like Oracle and others to, to use and leverage that data. Um, you know, this is mostly in reaction to a number of state laws, but there is sort of an emerging standard. And um, I feel like we've been sort of leading the pack for a number of years now because um, at the time CCPA was enacted, we were California based. So it was very important to us and we developed standards and processes to be able to navigate that. Joe, I wanna stay on a topic where you mentioned you, a lot of the retailers you work with, just as cookie list and the deprecation of the cookie was on a lot of conferences minds and the content that these conferences have been putting out. This year, I was at a few conferences where retail media, retail, retail is kind of been taking over. You know, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, just the way, you know, marketers and retailers need to look at, uh, you know, the next few years in marketing? It's an, it's an explosion because it's, again, it's, it's back to this idea that technology is now finally sort of meeting the moment to deliver the customer experience. And when you consider retailers at scale, um, where millions of representatives of millions of households per week go through the doors of some of these huge retailers, um, you've got kind of a captive audience. You've got what we would call sufficient inventory and many mechanisms and media channels in which to impact that. So retail media networks as a development um, are speedily kind of dominating aspects of the market. I've had the privilege of, of working with the IAB over the last year, and I've, I've been part of a, a rather large storied and experienced committee of retailers, um, of vendors working on a, a a best practices buyer's guide for retail media networks to kind of introduce the concept. We're still agreeing on kind of common language. You know, you, you mentioned at the outset of the podcast, we live in the world of acronyms, retail media networks and the development of RMNs to add another acronym to the mix is no exception because we're all agreeing on specific standards. We're, we're, we're working towards for now, a definitive, but ever-changing dynamic guide to kind of describe the space, but it is emerging very, very quickly. Um, not only is the technology rising up, but the, the, the quality, the hard skills of analytics is now being built into a lot of marketing curriculum. It's not enough um, many, many years ago to go through school 
um, without a lot of rigor around data analytics, some applications that serve data analytics, kind of a more advanced math quotient. Marketing now is really more of a deep analysis conversation in retail media networks and the brands that are kind of pushing some of the more popular ones at scale have that not only that technology native, but they also have kind of the, the mind share and, and the academic prowess to be able to offer deep insights and analytics um, where they might have had to use that um, use those services external to the brand. That said, there are still you know a very robust and abundant agency space um, that offer a variety of different services. And sometimes the retail media networks themselves have an agency component that addresses some of the deeper aspects of analysis, data analytics, targeting, segmentation, um, the space is just growing so very, very quickly. Um, and all along the way, it's back to this conversation before about, you know, abiding with the, the understanding that the consumers are part of that conversation. The handling of their data um, is paramount to all of those endeavors. Let's talk about identity because, it, you know, at Drista, we certainly, you know, our identity resolution is big for, for us here. And it's just a big topic in general. Yeah. What's your take on it? What's Oracle's take on identity, identity resolution, what it means to you? Sure. I, we, I mean, the partnerships that I, that I work on are principally driving towards personally identifiable markers. And so in our identity graph, the ability to, to bring first party data in, in a wide variety into the digital ecosystem through Oracle means um, we, we have a differentiator in that we're rooted in real people, real transaction data. And that's at the core um, of, of how we resolve identity for brands that are bringing their first party data um, in whatever form they, they choose to bring it into our ecosystem. So identity for Oracle is a combination of known identifiers and unknown identifiers through data partnerships and some increasingly um, powerful technology that allows us to understand the value and the prioritization of various elements of identity in terms of making linkages based on recent transactions, based on the relevancy of specific identifiers over others. If you were to use a Gmail address more recently versus a Yahoo address in the past, we would understand which was more relevant as it related possibly to registration. There's a whole a registration ID. So there's a whole conversation here about taking sort of stable parts of identity and name and address component, for example, and using that as part of the resolution process in partnership with a wide variety of third party partnerships. And again, some really powerful technology at the root of understanding those relationships and making them meaningful, which also cycles to the accuracy and scale of audiences. It cycles to the um, measuring the efficacy and efficiency of, of the, the marketing efforts on the heels of it. And, and it all is rooted in this combination of known identifiers and unknown identifiers, all of which is um, brought into our matrix in a very privacy safe, you know, back to this idea of how brands are obligated to, to meet or exceed pretty rigorous standards around how they handle data and how they share the handling of that data with their customers. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, similar to our, our take on it, but I love what you're doing there. Joe, let's get to know you a little bit personally. Before we get that, we have our staple question here, a question that people come up to me uh, with all the time. And they're like, thank you for asking this question. It is our LinkedIn question. At this point, LinkedIn should be paying us to advertise because we use <laughs> LinkedIn so much. But uh, LinkedIn, a message that you get on LinkedIn that resonates with you, 
that you will respond to and one that you just hate, you don't like, and you never respond to, your pet peeve of the LinkedIn solicitation. Sure, no, a message I will always respond to um, is an outreach from a student that I've met um, through various events, various opportunities to volunteer. Um, I just think that's great. I, I think that, you know, sort of the, the medium of, of communication and exchange for business is LinkedIn and an, asp an aspiring business student or professional utilizing LinkedIn and following up on a conversation we may have had upon first meeting is just great. I will always respond to that. Um, try to make a, try to connect in a follow-up fashion and kind of understand more about, you know, how I can try to be helpful is the best way I can kind of describe it with, with time in the seed and, and time in business, I've kind of come to this conclusion that that's how I can best serve is to try to be helpful. And, and I think young professionals, emerging professionals, especially on the heels of the last three years of crazy um, is, is a really valuable thing we should all be doing. Um, unsolicited messages are okay. I mean, I realize there's, there's an art and science to messaging mm -hmm. on LinkedIn, but um, I have had a couple of cases, the, the, the parties shall remain nameless, where I have explicitly reached out uh, to a company, to the head of a company about solicitations from their account executives, which has gone kind of ignored or, or disregarded. Wow. And that's sad. You know, there, there's a way to use LinkedIn effectively for marketing and um, spray and pray is not it. Uh, you know, there's the value of relationships and connections. LinkedIn is sort of this this terrific tool to to be able to to leverage those things and to do it in a sensible way. And unfortunately, I've had at least one notable case where bad actors are kind of not not utilizing it the way it should be. And and that's a message I will not respond to any longer. I love it. I love that you you kind of police it. That's kind of you're like you know what uh, I'm I'm aware of this this one particular company comes to mind. They shall remain nameless, but. It, Persistent outreach from a number of executives after a hard no. Yeah. I mean, you're herein is this idea: the relationship between technology consumers and the and the customer experience. This is not a good customer experience. Yeah, full on abiding that this is a business to business play. This is reaching out for a solicitation that is absolutely not in line with what I do. Yeah, that's well, I, that's really. I mean, that's really at the heart of it. So, I won't respond to that. I, I don't blame you. And I, yeah, because a lot of people are like, oh, Oracle, oh, oh we got to we gotta get into Oracle. Come on. It's like, it, it, come on. There's there's better ways to do it. Read the room. Know <laughs> who you're talking to. I know it's the same thing. Uh, it, it's good. That's, uh, that was a unique answer because a lot of, you know, I, I, a lot of people have a similar answer to it. I like that, that perspective. And you're right. I, knowing you, and I'm the same way, you know, we, we both, have worked in or for an organization like the Direct Marketing Club of New York, the Marketing Club of New York that works with students. And I know that you've worked with your alma mater there, Rutgers, and done a lot of work with that organization there. We, we, we've both been heavily involved in, in helping students. My our, our last you know few interns here at Starista who've done an amazing job there from those meetings, from Baruch College, from Hunter College. So yeah, talk to me about the work you're doing with, with Rutgers. Sure, I, a, a couple of, several years ago, Rutgers' information services discipline 
uh, created a, a certificate program in big data. It was a pretty big tent at the time. This is going back to probably 2017. And they tapped me to join as a curriculum advisor. It was really gratifying. Um, Rutgers was my alma mater, New Brunswick, class of 94, Rutgers College. And we worked on the committee. And unfortunately, during COVID, you know, education, higher education has gone through just crazy transformation on its own, moving things to um, virtual classes, now hybrid models. I mean, it's its 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 own podcast to talk about all the changes that I've observed, even just being tangential in the Rutgers family. But the, the big data cert certificate program was disbanded. And in my inquiry to understand if there was a direct replace led me to reach out to the marketing department out of the business school in Newark. And back in May of 2021, they asked me to join as an advisor to the board of the marketing department. And it's been just an incredible experience. Um, I'm coming up on two years of service and just the variety of volunteer work and input to impact positively the student experience, to work with students directly um, in, in them emerging as professionals, both undergrads and MBAs has been incredible. Uh, I was on a call literally yesterday with the head of the Office of Career Management, who's become a friend, and he, he brought in the, the vice dean, and we were talking about some of the core curriculum and asking a few of the advisors for specific input about what's important in market. How can we make this contemporary? How can we address specific issues that will be important to students as they graduate to sort of maybe dust off the the kind of long-term curriculum and, and update and improve it. And, and it's things like that that really can make an impact, you know, to the student experience, the student that's going to invest time and certainly money into an education um, to, to make themselves eligible for certain kinds of positions. So it's been super rewarding. And, and it all cycles back to working with the students. I mean, the the next generation of marketers are so thoughtful, smart. There's just so many amazing ideas coming down the pike. Like everybody hold on for more incredible change coming to all disciplines um, based on my experience at, at the marketing department at RBS. It's it's fantastic. And kudos to the faculty advisors and, and my, my um, co-board members. What an incredible experience to just get to know different industries, to get to know different perspectives and to work collaboratively towards the goal of genuinely trying to be helpful um, to students as they kind of come come into the career, you know, choose careers and, and come into the professional world. It's, it's been great. Absolutely great. Yeah, that's amazing. That It is re rewarding work. I haven't sat on a board of a, 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 an institution, but I, I've, uh, with our work that, again, we do at the Marketing Club in New York, it is rewarding. So I'm glad you're doing it. They're lucky to have you. What's new? Tell us about, you know, uh, I, I know a lot about you, but tell us about you know, what's new in your life, anything coming up. Uh, and then I want to get into some of your hobbies because, you know, I feel like you're like a Renaissance man. You do, <laughs> you kind of do it all. So uh, talk to us. Sure. I know what's new is this experience um, with the board and the volunteer experience with students has kind of led me to the conclusion that one of the best ways I can try to be helpful um, is to um, explore part-time teaching at some point. Um, yeah. it's, I'm very passionate about it. And in fact, leaving undergrad about 30 years ago, I, I was thinking of going on to grad school at that point for analytic philosophy, but pressed pause. So um, working with the, the Rutgers board and learning about the requirements of, from the AACSB, which is one of the governing bodies of business schools, um, to be a clinical faculty member of any of these AACSB certified programs, which is a non-PhD instructor, one needs a master's. 
So in August, I am starting my master's at uh, NYU Stern through an executive MBA program, and I'm really nice. excited to get started. That's amazing. So you said at the beginning of the podcast, you said, you know, you wanted to go to grad school. So here it is, you know, you're, you're going to grad school. And you also told everyone when you graduated. So now they do know who's older. <laughs> I was trying to keep that a secret, Joe. But no, that's amazing. Sorry, I blew our cover. No, that's... it's, 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 I'm really excited. The community, um, and actually I, I, I approached a couple of different schools when I was trying to figure this out. And boy, it's just, the communities just seem interesting. They're hotbeds of neat ideas and the bringing together of, of a lot of different professional experiences. Can't wait to get started. I think it's going to be a, a terrific experience. And I'm really, I feel really lucky uh, to be able to get to go. That's that's amazing. You have to keep us uh, posted on your journey there, the progress starting in August. It's it's never too late. People nope. listening, uh, there's some great programs out there. There definitely are. Definitely a lot of programs out there. I, I've I've definitely heard of the you know, NYU Stern, uh, of course, and I know they do quite a bit of great marketing programs too to reach out to professionals to help them be further their education and their careers. Hobbies. I know you're, so one of the things I know about you is you are a, a gifted musician and I've seen you play many a times. So what else is out there? You know what? You're, you like travel. I know that. Uh, maybe I should just, you like, why don't you just do the, my hobbies for me then and just tell me, uh, tell everyone, but talk to us. What, what else do you like doing? No, it, <laughs> music is, is the heartbeat. You know, Dave Brubeck said, the first thing you hear when you're born is your heartbeat. The last thing you hear when you pass away is your heartbeat. Mm. And for me, that's true. I grew up in a family surrounded by music, musical influences, and I play guitar. I've been playing, gosh, nearly 40 years now. Um, if you guys DM me after this on LinkedIn, I might share a picture of what I used to look like 25 years ago <laughs> with that. But music is, is a huge hobby. Um, travel um, is is important. We're lucky enough to be able to get to go so, to some pretty cool places um, and have and continue to do so. Um, my uh, wife and I also participate in a community garden. This will be year two right here in Hoboken, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. We have a small patch of land we're going to grow some vegetables on. Uh, she comes from a farming family, and every October I get to help my brothers-in-law with harvest, which is really unique and interesting um, out in, in central Indiana where they live. Wow. Um, but a, a voracious reader, also a comedy fan, this past Sunday, um, we saw Sarah Silverman at um, the Wellmont Theater in Montclair. It was a terrific show. Oh, nice. Yeah, she's fans so, of Sarah. She's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, just a, a wide variety of interest and part of living um, across the river from New York. And again, feeling really lucky to be able to get to do that um, is just trying to take advantage of all the arts and culture yeah. of the city. We came here purposefully as, as a big part of that in addition to our job. So yeah, I, I find myself very fortunate to be able to indulge in some of this stuff. And uh, it's, it's an endless list, as you know, and on any given night, you could do 12 things, um, including go see comedy and go see Vin, Vinnie James do his yeah. comedy thing. Yeah, you know, that, that's what I tell people. I said, if you can't find something to do in New York City, that's it. You need to move out of here. There are countless things. I, you know, I did two shows on Saturday. One was the Grizzly Pair. The other was the Tribeca Comedy Lounge. It's like one was at eight o'clock, one was at 10. It's like there's, and that's sandwiched within a block of oh, yeah. four other venues, literally like, you know, less than a hundred yards away from each other. There's four venues and, and and then there's the Blue Note right there. There's Cafe Wa. There's all these different places like, and that's within like 
you know, uh, not uh, you know, three hundred feet of each other. It's uh, it's New York. Yeah, I love it that there's so many things to do. Uh, Joe, a a final thought, a closing thought to our audience. Anything you want to share about yourself, about your career, Oracle, anything? Sure. No, I I think the one thing I would like to share, and maybe it's it's a little bit of a theme of some of the things I talked about here is um, I, I take it very seriously to try to be helpful and, and working with students, younger executives, especially navigating um, some pretty unprecedented times um, professionally and in just sort of the cultural and social spheres. Um, all we can do to try to give as much of it back as we can to, to try and be helpful. And I would say to to younger folks, you know, we're navigating strange times all across the board. Um, some powerful words, maybe that someone told me, this too shall pass. Life continues and moves and evolves on. And there, there, you know, things move cyclically. Don't lose heart. Don't lose faith in, in, in some of those pursuits. Um, it's just an abundant community. I've had the pleasure and the privilege of being around the New York community, present company included. And, you know, there are helpers, right? Mr. Rogers said that. He said, mm -hmm. look for the helpers on the heels of 9-11. It was one of the most profound, important messages um, in his long career of providing yeah. profound, important messages. And that applies everywhere. And so, too, with professionals who are always willing to lend a hand and help and, and, and try to, to provide any kind of assistance. I, I just think that that's the best thing we can ever do. Uh, it's uh, Yeah, words of wisdom. I... I, I wholeheartedly believe in that as well thank you so much for spending some time with us joe we always appreciate it my friend that is joe frick he's the head of partnership development at oracle advertising look up joe you know, talk to him you know especially if you're like you said a student looking for some mentorship uh, you know someone early in your career uh, i've been in this industry for 20 something years i still look to joe frick for advice and he always lends, uh, it lends his ear and his time, so I appreciate it. That's Joe Frick. I'm Vincent Petrofessa. AJ's at some financial conference. He's missing out, but he's here in New York. We're happy to have him. This has been another episode of The Marketing Stir. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, please email us at themarketingstir at starista.com. And thanks for listening.